This is a Dauntless Media Collective podcast. Visit dauntless.fm for more content. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm Gail. And this is Full Mutuality. So today, uh, I'm really excited about our guest. Um, I've been listening to his podcast for a little while now, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to have um, Scott Okamoto, who is a former English professor and also a podcaster and soon-to-be author with a book on the way. Um, And I guess, uh, Scott, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on Full Mutuality. Thank you for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I guess to to start off, the... um, First of all, you're you're a soon-to-be author. Uh, your book is coming out. Do you have a title for it yet? What's it about? Are there things you can talk about or can't talk about? Oh, yeah, I can talk about it all. Uh, the The book is tentatively titled The Wrong Christian because okay. uh, it's about my time working at Azusa Pacific University, which is an evangelical liberal arts college here in California. And when I, when they hired me, I was still a Christian like a progressive one and already didn't feel like I fit in. So um, within like five or six years, I had completely deconstructed my faith and the whole time they pro- they were promoting me and I, I was a full timer. So mm. uh, I stuck around for another 10 years um, teaching my, that brand of uh, progressive Christianity, but really secretly, not having any faith of my own mm-hmm. at all. But, you know, when you're raised, I grew up evangelical, so I spoke evangelical fluently. Yeah. Uh, I knew all, all, I knew how to, I knew how to say, say all the things and then sort of twist that into a progressive mindset where you like care about people mm-hmm. and you, you, uh, you, you, you aren't a racist. <laughs> you, you, you don't hate LGBTQ people. Um, you value women. These are all things that so got me in a lot of trouble. In, I know. In evangelicalism. I know. It's like, ooh, this is how we're so liberal. Look at our extremism. But yeah, yeah. It's embarrassing to, to point out, but in that context, I was seen as a really radical, dangerous person. And I was I was constantly being told on, reported to the president of the school. Is APU um, so, a very conservative uh, Christian university? I guess we're East Coasters. You're a West Coaster, so I'm less familiar yeah. with what's out there. So if you ask an evangelical, they would say that's the liberal evangelical school because wow. they allow dancing. And if you're 21, you're allowed to drink off campus. So that, that puts them on like the far left mm-hmm. of the evangelical spectrum. Yeah. But once you step off, step out of that world, it's there's nothing liberal or progressive about it. Right. You know, it's it's super conservative. It's... Um, mm. yeah, so it's, I, f- I find that I was so... just the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You really were. I find that so fascinating coming from, you know, my, my world and I've talked about, talked about it before on, on, on the podcast, so I won't belabor the point, but to, to let you in on it, Scott, I, um, I come from Bob Jones university. Um, I so heard. that <laughs> blew my mind. <laughs> He comes from like the really conservative yeah, so, evangelical university. So we're on on the opposite. They're not even end of considered the, evangelicals right. to some of those people. <laughs> They're yeah, fundamentalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're through. not even saved. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, you, you folks aren't aren't even aren't even Christians. No. I don't know what you're talking about. No, no, exactly. <laughs> Which it's it's funny because um, you know you can always get a little bit more extreme um, because from or from, a lot. 
<laughs> oh, yes. or a lot, yeah. Because from yeah. <laughs> from Bob Jones University, uh, you then can can stumble into uh, the Pensacola Christian College world, where mm. you know they're they're still kind of similar to Bob Jones in that they like to to look um, like nice to the outside world, but you know they've got the they've got the additional um, KJV only you know stipulation in their. Um, at their school. And then further beyond that, you have places like Hiles Anderson College, which is a whole other level of <laughs> of extremism. So, so what we're saying is that evangelicalism <laughs> is a spectrum disorder. Is that what we're going yeah. <laughs> How far on the spectrum? Oh, it's man. kind of an infinite spectrum, it sounds like. It's it, just people yeah. just pushing further and further out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, because then you've got you've got Westboro, uh Westboro Baptist, mm. which is, you know, a whole other um, but yeah, they come out here. They 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 protested many things. I've yeah. Oh, God. So, um, I want to. Um, I'm kind of curious about uh your your time at uh, Azusa Pacific. Um, maybe if you if you want to kind of tell us some stories. Um, are what was probably something that stands out to you as being, um, I mean, among the more ridiculous uh things about that particular evangelical university or even um, evangelical universities in general, as I think, you know, your podcast is, is likely going to be talking to people from other evangelical um, mm -hmm. schools. Definitely. Uh, so the podcast um, is the stories of mostly former students that I had in my class that were still friends mm. all these years later. Uh, this would have been like from the early two thousands to like well, I quit in 2013 I was going to be fired. Um, so I can tell that story. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, it, once I announced that I was doing this podcast on Twitter with some friends, oh, people just immediately started reaching out to me who went to like Liberty and um, Wheaton oh. and Biola, which is sort of like the, the, the rival school of APU out here. Hmm. And, um, Everyone just had ridiculous, crazy stories to tell um, that that don't sound ridiculous when you're in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, when you're when you're living through, like you went to Bob Jones, I'm sure. Like right. any at any given day, you saw and heard things that today sound oh, ridiculous. Yeah. Like what <laughs> the hell? But at the time, that's just normal. So all these stories of just rampant racism and sexism and um, homophobia mm. um, and just bizarre theology um, in the evangelical world that really isn't biblical so much as cultural. Yeah. So that's what I encountered. I, I went, I went to public schools my whole life. I went to public elementary, junior high, high school, uh, and then UC San Diego, which was, it's a huge secular mm -hmm. institution, science-based I was an English major, but I failed out of science. Um, and that, I don't, I don't know. I was, that was a huge part of my own deconstruction, even though I was a hardcore evangelical Christian through most of that. Hmm. Um, so by the time I got to APU, you know, I, I was already had a foot out the door of, of all church. I was really searching and struggling. My wife and I were in the same boat. We were, we were trying to go to this church I grew up at called Lake Avenue uh, Church here in Pasadena. Okay. I grew up there and my parents were still going there and they were having all these new young multicultural 
you know, programs and mm-hmm. Sunday school classes and even a, a, a like a cool hip um, service. It was, <laughs> it was sort of like a proto mega church thing because this okay. would have been like in the late 90s. Um, mm. So, you know, a band and a stage and, you know, lights and uh, a really cool pastor with great sneakers. This this was like just beginning to, to hit. And yeah. so I was already like, we were already sick of that scene. And um, so when I got hired at APU, I was already like, man, this is, I'm just going to teach here a couple of semesters and then hopefully hook on to one of the, I was also teaching at community colleges. So I was teaching normal school <laughs> hmm. um, and really enjoying it and really enjoying the interaction with students. Um, feeling like it was, it was like a real interaction where people are, cause I was teaching uh, composition um, you know, you're, you're teaching people how to think you're teaching right. people how to communicate uh, and use the English language to their advantage. And most of these, these students were, you know, lower income. Um, it was a very diverse contrast that with APU, which when I got there in 98 was about 85 to 88%. I think it was 88% white, the student population. Oh, wow. And this is Southern California. <laughs> See, that should you can't not be. find a place outside of your local country club that is, that was 88% of anything, much less white um, yeah. in Southern California. And here was this little sort of stronghold of, you know, white nationalism um, in the LA area that, that was, uh, yeah, it was APU. It was, so I immediately felt weird because uh, I was just starting to really get in touch with my Asian American identity mm. and really starting to question, you know, I was often that token BIPOC person in a room of, of white people. Mm. And I was comfortable doing that because I did that my whole life. My yeah. whole, uh, I grew up in Arcadia, California. And for you East Coasters, it was a white supremacist stronghold in in the San Gabriel Valley of Los Angeles area. Like literally, it, you talk about redlining it. You know, it was solid red. Wow. And they let for some reason my parents move there in 1977 because we weren't black or brown. We, we they didn't know what we were, <laughs> um, and we kind of broke broke the line. Wow. But at the time I grew up, it was all white. And and if you know anything about Arcadia now, it's it's now solidly Taiwanese. It's hmm. it's um, the mall I grew up walking at where I got ching chonged and uh, told go back to your country is now like the Asian mall, <laughs> which is, wow. which is kind of awesome. Yeah. Ironic in a very good way. Yeah. 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 All the white people moved like East, um, farther out. Um, wow. so, um, when I got to APU, it was just like, man, I'm back to this, you know, this is, and it's not that anyone was mean or, or even unwelcoming. It was more that it was just crystal clear that I was an outsider or as yeah. I was just not white. And most of the BIPOC faculty had to learn, sort of had to do the song and dance of being, we're the good ones, you know, we're the good black people. We're the good Asian people. We're the good Hispanic yeah. people. And yeah. um, you really have to cater and go out of your way to cater to whiteness mm-hmm. in these, in these spaces. And I was already uncomfortable with that, yeah. but um I don't know if you, if you, you said you listened to the Dan Hodge interview on my mm-hmm. podcast, you know, both of us one. started around the same time and we were, we were ready to play nice. We were ready to, to do it and whatever it took to, to have, you know, stable employment. Mm. 
but quickly realized that you kind of have to sell your soul and neither of us were willing to do that. So we just became troublemakers. And so <laughs> I was constantly hauled into my boss's office to account for something horrible. I said, um, can you tell us which ranged story? from the, what you got in trouble? Sure. for? Sure. We like hearing those. Stories. Yeah. One, one of my, my most popular, you know, so I, when you teach composition, it kind of sucks because most people in America don't know English. Mm. At all, right. they, they don't. They couldn't tell you what a noun or a verb is, you know, when they come out of high school. Mm. And the AP students were no different. So, just to teach us what a sentence is, I, I had to teach parts of speech: what, what's a noun, what's a verb, what's an adjective, what, you know, all these pronouns. Mm. Um, at community college, it just so happened that one kid said, "Can I say the f word on your show?" Is is oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yes, yes. Like, oh okay. <laughs> You're, you got the explicit it. tag yes, you can, <laughs> yeah. for every episode. <laughs> so this one kid just was trying to shock me one day at community college. And he was like, well, fucking this and fuck that. And, and I started writing his sentences on the board, on the chalkboard, with, with, with all the ways he used fuck. Fucking. Um, and so that's a, so this is a ner- noun. This is a verb. This is, this is an adjective. Brilliant. And, and the students were like suddenly wide-eyed. They were like, Oh, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I never understood what an adjective was until I saw, you know, that that's fucking shit. Shit is a noun. Fucking is uh, is modifying it. So it's an adjective. In, in... <laughs> so stupidly, I brought this to APU. Oh, man. Thinking, uh... <laughs> thinking that, you know, knowing that it kind of set, turned a light bulb on it for community college students. Right. And some kids appreciate it, but oh my God, the day after I did that lesson, uh, my my boss was standing outside his his door, just cracking up. He's like, what did you, the the school got calls from parents and and some of the students themselves. Professor Okamoto wrote the F word all over the place and was just spewing filth. And so I had to explain to him, I was like, this is, this is my, my, my pedagogy. This is how I, I use sort of subversive tactics to help these kids understand how the English language work. And he thought it was awesome, but he's like, yeah, but you can't do that here. I was like, wow. oh, well, shit. Um, <laughs> fucking shit. It's not just any yeah, fucking shit. I, I actually had a, you know, I talked about the etymology of the word, word shit and got in trouble too. So like you couldn't, I couldn't even, it's one thing to say you can't use the word, but we couldn't even talk about yeah. Um, so I realized, yeah, this this is not a progressive no. place. I was in a faculty meeting and and a woman sat down next to me, just flustered, just really upset. And so we were all like, "Well, what's what's wrong?" And she's like, "A student said crap in class today," <laughs> and like half the people at the table were like, <gasps> and the other half, my half, we were looking like. And okay, and <laughs> and your world oh, exploded oh. and shattered. <laughs> yeah. So we had to go. Oh no! I'm so sorry. That's <laughs> that's that's terrible. And she was she was scandalized. She was. It's like oh oh god. So that's 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 the cultural vibe. I mean, yeah. you can't you can't talk about. Um, and then yeah. So that's the word. You can't even talk about words, but you couldn't. I was told not to talk about marijuana. I was because I tried to get teach argumentation Mm -hmm. and thinking about different sides of issues. So I brought in fun (laughs) issues that I thought were fun, and most of the and again, most of the students were okay with this. It was always just like in a class of fifteen, 
you know, a third of them would just be just horribly upset and cause and cause trouble. And inevitably, at least one or two of them were a child or grandchild of you know some big donor who had like a building named yeah. at them or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. A lot of pastors' kids. Um, oh, true. I knew if there was a kid of like a famous sports person or something that they were going to cause trouble because they're rich people tend to be really conservative mm. although i have to say the missionary kids were usually the most rebellious so there was that i, <laughs> they I probably I didn't want to rat to... you out the missionary kids were no the missionary like kids guy. were like tell me more <laughs> <laughs> i fucking hate my life that's <laughs> usually the case i find that so fascinating um because you know from uh, from the perspective of somebody who went to a school like Bob Jones, um, APU would would be seen as like non-Christian. Uh, oh, like, yeah. Like Christian in I heard only. it, yeah. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, to have this sort of experience, because I, I and I remember on, um, I think one of the, the episode um, with... Uh, a former administrator on on your yeah. on your podcast um he was talking about one of the struggles that he dealt with was that there were no policies you know so he was he was doing things that got approval um from the provost and the president and whoever and then suddenly a donor got upset or an alumnus got upset and yeah, or someone from another school right someone <laughs> from another school right hold on him yeah and so there's no um but but there's no there's no policy, so there's no standard, right. Um, right. and I find it interesting that you know the APU is 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 trying to um, you know skate along that line, um, whereas where I come from, oh, you better believe there were policies, like the word crap. Yeah. That was off limits. And we had meetings in the dorms. I remember uh, every semester we had at the start of the semester, uh, the dorm meeting to talk about what kind of language we are and are not allowed to use. And it was the only time all semester that certain words were ever allowed to be spoken, including um, words like crap. And even, even saying phrases like, oh my gosh, or yeah. um, darn it, yeah. <laughs> or what the heck? They were all explicitly off limits. Like they were in our handbook <laughs> as being off limits. So it's just yeah. it's it's funny. So on on the one hand, those those struggles didn't exist because you know they were just, the line was clear. Yeah, the yeah. line was clear. Um, so, but on, on on the other hand, then you had you had people like me who just couldn't give a shit about the line until <laughs> <laughs> you want to graduate and you've gotten called into this yeah, yeah, too sure. many times so now you got to yeah. be good for a little bit and not get in any trouble Nate, did I... you say heck yesterday i heard stories <laughs> <laughs> it's wild though like fundamentalism as wacky as it is i do have respect for the fact that they let you know where the, all the lines mm-hmm. are they're sort of unabashed mm-hmm. about the fact yeah. you know we're homophobic we we don't yeah. we, we believe gays are and they they'll tell you and then they'll do the same with women and um yeah. they're you know they're just not shy to tell you yeah. all of their horrible opinions and and they don't try and couch it and they don't try and sugarcoat it and it's like they're really proud of it and then you yeah. get into like evangelicalism where it's like all the policies that are not there the where the lines are are not everything is like behind the scenes behind a whole bunch of layers of curtains so on the outside you might not know that that's a line but then secretly it is so i just find it's it sounds like a lot more of a hard space i found it was a difficult space to navigate because it was full of contradictions 
But mm-hmm. it yeah. sounded like even as a teacher in that school, you know, here you have the the person calling you into his office laughing and thinking it's it's no big deal, but still letting you know, well, we still have to yeah, appease you the can't. donors and you can't do yeah. it anymore. And it's like the paying customers, mm, the, the yes, parents, of course, of course, because <laughs> yeah, and that's how. APU is very evangelical in that it you, you follow the money. Mm-hmm. So instead of policies where you had, Nate, mm-hmm. we have just don't piss off the, the people giving us money. Right. And that and then that's very, you know, vague, just like evangelical theology is vague. Yeah. You know, these kids come come to APU absolutely confident in their views that uh, sex before marriage is, is forbidden in the Bible. And then when you tell them to go look for that, they get they get a little upset because there actually isn't a right. verse that you know says do not have sex before you you get married while you're after you've been dating for you know this many years. It's, there's there's no clear cut. So the, the even just the basic belief system that most evangelicals have is not really biblically based. It's it's biblically inferred. Yeah. It's, it's biblically um, you know there's these you know purity verses and and um, and in some cases, not. You know, mm-hmm. these kid, these these people don't really read the Bible. They read a few verses yeah. that they're very familiar with. That they they wield like a sword. But even concept. I, I, like- every year, I asked, "Do you guys even know what the Ten Commandments are?" And they would say, "Sure." And I swear, only in fifteen years, I think one or two students could name off all the Ten Commandments. Mm. You would think something so. It's kind of a trick question because there's a couple of different. <laughs> places where they right. might exist and there's more than 10 yeah <laughs> even though we call it the 10 but um they don't know that you yeah. know they, they don't kill don't <laughs> uh, steal don't d- screw your neighbor something yeah. um <laughs> um something about sunday um, right that we don't follow um and it just falls apart and, but that's the that's the they think that's the basis of their faith and they think that's the basis of their whole understanding mm-hmm. of how the world works and they don't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so fascinating how little, um, evangelicals actually know about, uh, mm-hmm. their own, their own beliefs and their own, fa- and, and I guess, um, I hate to give fundamentalists any credit, but where I suppose I, I could is that they really do hammer home all of like, like I had to memorize the 10 commandments when I was, I think in like third or fourth grade um i had to uh i had to i mean when i was um i think it was my senior year of high school or maybe my my junior year of high school i memorized the entire book of philippians um Ooh. plus the uh um, nate's flexing on us right yeah. now he is he's yeah. showing yeah. us how fundamentalist yeah. those roots go down yeah. we actually yeah. i we... bow before you i i, <laughs> I, I never memorized anything uh, Oh, but it wasn't, it wasn't by choice. Actually, I joined, so, um, in order to get out of Bible class when I was in high school, uh, I joined, um, the Bible quiz team and, Bible um, quiz team. Still wrote, yeah, wrote, wrote memorization yeah. came easy for me. So, uh, Gail's heart is just pounding right now. <laughs> just, 
<laughs> the other day, we for fun. That's I, my man. I came up with how evangelical are you? Were you quiz? And I, I don't have it on hand, but yeah. like I just started adding things like, could you sing three Veggie Tales songs off by heart? And like oh, you know, yeah. like just random stuff that's so uniquely evangelical. And like seeing who which of us was a bigger nerd in the, in in that time. But you know, it's funny when you were mentioning how they don't know their own stuff and they just cherry pick a verse. I had somebody like on our page saying like. Because somebody commented that, like, they don't believe Jesus is coming back. And they're like, really? You can be a Christian and not believe Jesus is coming back? And to them, it was just so crystal clear that the doctrine of the rapture is biblical. And it is it is like everyone believes in it. And it's like, no, this is an evangel- American evangelical doctrine that's been around for 200 years max. It was like 18-something that someone proposed this. And, you know, they'll take verses about Jesus talking, you know, about his resurrection. And that, that's, that's the, you know, he's coming back in the future. And... Just all the different things that in their head, it's, you know, they've really just been watching Left Behind movies and they have music yeah, and yep. all this stuff reinforcing this um, this concept that's brand new to Christianity. And it's like, it's amazing, like how, like you said, they don't actually know their own history. And yeah, it is it is quite interesting to see what's been dragged in and, and is viewed as like, obviously, this mm-hmm. is part of Christianity. And it's like, really, though? Like, do you not know how new this is as a yeah. teaching? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm going to jump around in questions, but I had this on, yeah. on my head as, as you were bringing your own story into it. Um, you know, you talked about how you had one foot out the door uh, when you, so when you came into APU, you were still technically a Christian, but struggling. You had a lot of stuff going on in your mind. I was wondering if you'd share some of the journey of, uh, you know, did APU push you over that edge? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, what did that, what did that, that, I mean, the mega church world that you were in was clearly hitting some things um, in you that was really having an effect. What did that process look like for you going into APU and how did, how did your faith, what did that faith transition deconstruction process look like for you? Yeah, I, I had a long deconstruction when I look back, beginning when, you know, when I was a kid and answering, asking questions. Uh, and this is really what, half of what my book is about is um, each chapter I kind of go back and look at a seminal moment of Mm -hmm. my youth or um, early adulthood and sort of tie it in with what I was seeing at APU. Um, I think it started at UC San Diego when I was convinced being gay was a sin or, you know, an abomination and all that stuff. It's it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. But when I actually met gay people, who you know? I I I was I I grew up seven houses down from James Dobson, oh, and wow. so my parents were huge Dobson people. You know, he he was in my house. We we babysat. You know, we babysat for him. Wow. <laughs> his and so I knew his kids and I knew them. My parents worshipped them, and so everything out of that world is that the gay agenda is out to destroy you and take your soul and make you all gay and probably satanic and you know and so i didn't had never met anyone who was gay openly gay i had friends that came out later but at uc san diego i sat down at a table with a group of gay students um by accident and started talking to them and when i found out they're all gay my mind just exploded it was like but these are nice people these are these they're not trying to convince me of or, or you know it, it's like it's this is so embarrassing to to, to admit, but mm. that's where I was at eighteen, and so once once you sort of deprogram from that sort of really rigid thinking, 
I don't know. I just, it's just, it's not a slippery slope, but it, for me, it was a long slope of, mm. wow, that's, that doesn't make sense. And that's not true. And, um, so uh, my wife and I moved up to San Francisco to go to grad school. We got married when we were up there and, um, we tried to find churches and we tried to find, you know, things cause we, Hey, we're Christian. So we'll just find a church that believes all the things we do that gay people are not evil. And, um, Women do have a role to play in leadership. Uh, we, we we visited like a Calvary Chapel like church in San Francisco once, and when okay. as soon as the head pastor said something like, "Will the men come forward with the offering plates?" My wife just stood up and marched out. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I I guess we're leaving." Um, good Japanese boy did not want to disrupt the service and be the only ones walking <laughs> out, but I followed her out. I was like, "Yep." We aren't going here. Mm. Worship sucked anyway. And <laughs> sneakers were not cool. Sorry, this is before sneakers. But um, so yeah. So by the time I got to APU, you know, I lived in San Francisco, and all my, none of my friends were Christian in, from my grad school, my writing program, and none, none of none of my wife's friends in dental school were Christian. Um, but we loved them, and they loved us, and and we found because you know when you when you grow up in the church, you're told that. It's only through Christ that you can have meaning and and goodness and grace and all these things. And you find that's that's bullshit. There's there's so much love and grace and community outside of the church. And that's the big lie that you know they, they tell you. And so I had I already knew this when I started at APU. I was already starting to, to be a part of an amazing community here in LA called the Tuesday Night Cafe, which is an Asian American art space. And those people were becoming my my family and my support and you know my church, if you will. Mm. Um, so it was really easy to, for me to leave church. I, I read online and I on Twitter and on Facebook about all these people that just sort of wake up one morning and realize they're not Christian anymore, and that has to be horribly terrifying. You know, your whole life is tied up in these communities and in, mm. in church. You, you may work for the church. What the hell do you do then? You know, I, I, my heart goes out to them. Because I took a nice, easy road out of the whole thing that, that spanned, you know, 15, 20 years. Mm. So by the time I realized that APU, you know, and, and to your question, did APU push me out? No, no but they might have accelerated it because, man, those people were, were horrible. Um, those stu- most of the students were, oof. You know, I got a, I, I, I figured out how to get along with them and, and even have relationships with most of them. But man, it was work. It was yeah. so much work. Um, yeah. So by the time, you know, it was actually a, a, a huge relief to just admit one day, I don't believe in this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I read that Bart Ehrman book that kind of was like the last straw. Yeah. If the Bible isn't reliable, then what the hell are we even doing this for? Um, yeah. To me, you know, I have a lot of friends who are still, who still see the world as I do and, and are Christian. But mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was just pretty easy to just sort of slide on out over yeah. 15 years. Yeah. Um, I have a blog post where, where um, I realized all the different versions of God were me. You know, when I was a kid, God hated gay people and he he wanted all these things. And then, oh, I I got to college. Oh, no, God doesn't hate gay people. That's amazing. You know, you know, there was like seven or eight gods throughout my 
my life as a Christian. And I realized it, it was like that movie, uh, uh, A Beautiful Mind. You know, he, he had, he, he, I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Yeah, the, the, I definitely have seen it. Yeah. Let's yeah. So at the end of the movie, there, there's all his, his people and his imagine. Sorry, spoiler. It's an old movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. By now, you know, the statue. If you haven't seen it now, that's on you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he won an Academy Award, I think. Um, yeah. At the end of the movie, he lo- he looks across the street and like all the figments of his imagination are just sort of walking there, you know, smiling at him because he's got them under control now. And I compare that to how, you know, every once in a while I'll look across the street and see all the different gods I used to believe in. You know, I was convinced that this was, oh, no, this is what God thinks. This, but really it was just what I thought. Yeah. And then we, we fashioned the God that we believe in mm. to that belief system or worldview. And you realize, man, after like the fifth or sixth time changing, wow, God's either really wishy-washy or there is a correlation here between my development as a human being and my understanding of this concept of God. And so... Mm. Which is also fascinating yeah. because um, you see that even in the pages of uh, of the Bible, um, which, mm. you know, going in, not not going into all the history about how all of those books were compiled and, and decided that yeah. they were going to be um, the Bible, but... Yeah. Um, it was the Holy Spirit and God. The canon, he, with, yeah. he told everyone oh, yeah, he, what was going to be in it. It was a really <laughs> yeah. simple yeah. process. There's no disputes. Yep. It was, you know, decided. The Holy Spirit whispered in their ear what to say. They yep. penned it down and they exactly. picked it out. God chose well, it. Well, that's yeah. what most... Evangelicals <laughs> seem to believe, right? Yeah, yeah. this book really came down not. from the heavens. This is the book. <laughs> yeah, and follow this. You you don't even really learn Lord. how this canon got put. Like it took me so long yeah. to understand that this canon is still not even agreed on by Christians. Right, like right, right. I might have heard the Catholics had a few extra books, and all oh, the Catholics, you know them. <laughs> yeah. But then it was like, oh wait, the Orthodox, the Armenian, the Ethiopian. How many different canons? Yeah, yeah. How yep. many different canons exist uh, to this this book? And mm-hmm. how was this put? Yeah. And then who put this together? And well, yeah. anyway, yeah. these are questions. And who translated that, it? Yeah. From right. which yeah. codex? Exactly. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, These our, are questions that yep. evangelicals like. If, if they start to go too far into it, it would start to take apart that doctrine of inerrancy, which mm-hmm. seems to be the the tool they whack everyone yeah. with when they say, yep. "This isn't my opinion. This is God's yeah. opinion." Which, and which then version they, of in the Bible? Yeah. 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 They cherry pick out yeah. a verse, and it's like, "See, yeah, fling that yeah. at you." And which which translation and which you know which passage and which book in the Bible? Um, yeah. what, and and t- so to your point, one thing that that I've that I think is is quite noticeable, um, but we've we've been so inundated with the evangelical explanations um, of why this is the case that we don't actually just sit and think through. God looks very different in this book than he does <laughs> in this book. You know, he functions very differently in Genesis one yeah. versus Genesis two. He functions yeah, very differently. It, it, Job. He, yeah, in Job. He functions very differently in Job than he does in, you know... Uh, kind of petty. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then you have... I mean, he's very petty throughout <laughs> throughout a yeah. lot of a lot of the Old Testament, um, which, you know, I'm not... I, I, I don't want to um, uh, to presume upon uh, any Jewish well, interpretations. Evangelicals have but been I given want certain to, interpretations of the right, Old Testament right, that are not very right. terrible well, what, as what, a whole. Yeah, and what, right. what, but what I want to kind of uh, make clear is that um, there, I, 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 I'm not privy to how uh, how Jews read um, the Bible and how they um, perceive God in in the pages of their scriptures. 
Um, but that is, I, I know based on my very limited interactions with, um, with a few rather progressive rabbis in, in my, uh, in, in my area geographically, um, that yeah. by and large, um, Jews do not see God in any way, shape or form, similarly to how, um, evangelical Christians view God. And yet evangelicals tend to believe that they have the final image yeah. or authority or idea of what God looks like. And yet, as we were just saying earlier, very few of them have any, you know, working knowledge of their own scriptures. Right. Um, so God kind of looks like Ted Nugent. <laughs> if he was like a little, no, yeah, he's old now. So yeah. 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 Oh God. Um, so I actually wanted to ask um a bit about um your uh because you, you've alluded to your perception of queer people and how that evolved. Um but you know, I, I find and we've had we've had this conversation um on a couple of episodes on our podcast, um because of the perception of queer folks from the evangelical world um how did you reconcile um the the perception that you had with what was likely or did APU just not say anything um and were you one like like many of us in who who might be more uh sympathetic to um, the LGBTQ community yet still attending evangelical churches um, might just say, oh, no, no, no. See, our church welcomes everybody. See, we have a big welcome mm -hmm. home sign and 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 we say we want diversity, but but we're not actually, you know, diving into policies and 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 stances that the church would would take. Um, was that sort of a, a sticking point for you or or was that something that kind of evolved over time while you were working at APU? Yeah, by the time I got to APU, I was pretty much there as far as completely affirming it, it almost being a non-issue. Mm. Because when churches say they're welcoming, they're, it's kind of a bait and switch because they're not necessarily affirming when they say they're welcoming. Right. They're, you, like APU would say, we love everyone and we love gay people. But they, that means they're going to invite that student or faculty person into a conversation about the legitimacy of their identity. And right. Even if they don't have it all figured out, just the fact that you're you're going to force someone to defend their existence, to me, is inhumane yeah. and and unjust. And so, that's for me, that's a non-starter. I could never by then. I could never even think of attending a church that that was that way. We ended up at an Episcopalian church around that time, which they call the last stop of of yeah. of faith. <laughs> It was fully affirming, you know, some of the, the priests were, were LGBTQ. Um, and I found that was a really nice way to wrap up my time of faith, to yeah. be sitting in pews with gay families and mm. um, a little bit of diversity. It was still mostly white, but um, these are good people. These are the, I called it the NPR church. It's, it's, <laughs> if someone had a book on, on Terry Gross's show, they were probably speaking in the rectory that weekend at this <laughs> church. You know, it's very progressive and very, um, intellectual. Um, I, I decided I want, I liked my Sundays to not be in church more than I liked being in that church. So we stopped mm -hmm. going, but as to the queer issue, 
I, in the very last episode of my podcast, I talk about this. I was trying to play the game. I was trying not to get in trouble. So I would try to give hints that I was affirming to my students. Okay. Because I just knew statistically, if I had, you know, 100 students over the course of a semester, just statistically, some of them were gay. Oh, yeah. You know, and so I I just wanted to sort of like put the flag out there that I was like, we can talk about this. You know, I, I, I value you as a human being and... And that would get me in trouble. And so by the halfway through my time there, I was just like, fuck it. I, let's just talk about this. And here's what I think. And here's here's, here's the theology of Christianity that is affirming. Uh, there was that great documentary, um, For the Bible Tells Me So. I don't know if it's, oh, I it's still seen, out there. I don't there. think I have seen that one yet. Yeah, it, it it's great. You know, yeah. I, it's an amazingly good starting point for a conversation of people who are still in church. And uh, I would show clips of that because mm-hmm. um, these are actual theologians, you know, talking about the, the clobber verses. So, um, yeah, I, I also knew when when the students started a, a gay straight alliance, they called it at first, it became a group called Haven, which kind of gained national attention eventually. Mm-hmm. The, I knew when when the students were telling me they were going to do this, it was going to force me to make an active choice was was I going to still stay in my own you know straight closet and and play it safe, or was I really going to do the right thing and be openly supportive of my of my students, my queer students, and so I I chose the latter and was the last five years was just in constant trouble from hmm. the activities of the group that was secret. We could have all been kicked out um, for being in this group. Um, then the group decided they wanted to come out to the school and, and be a real and be a real student org. Mm-hmm. And I tried to tell them not to because um, they were all going to get in trouble. And a lot of them did. Mm-hmm. Um, but that really put me in the spotlight. You know, there was a there's a file on me with the board of trustees as the bad queer affirming oh professor. Um, so it ended up being my um, the, the, the reason that I was. I was booted out, but uh, real quick, the, it, it, to me it was it was justice because I don't know if you guys followed the whole Joshua Harris thing. Mm-hmm. You know yep. he's he's now deconstructed or he's right, yep. right. And, but everyone's still mad at him and rightly so. Um, but I was like, you know, I was an evangelical and I said terrible shit to people in in the name of Jesus, in the name of love. And I, I tell a story in one of my blog posts about how a. And I was in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at UC San Diego. And one of the my fellow leaders in InterVarsity uh, asked if she could meet with me. And she came out to me, mm. which should have been a, an honorable thing. And I said terrible things mm. to her based on what I understood. I, I just told her, you should pray. I, I didn't I didn't accept that news as as wonderful news that she figured this out about herself. I was trying to like bring her back yeah. into the safe, you know, evangelical mindset. And I knew as soon as I was saying it by her face that I, I was I was fucking up. Mm-hmm. I was you know, I don't think I ever spoke to her. She I don't think she ever spoke to me again. Mm-hmm. And the image of her face sort of falling as I said those things, 
which I, you know, in my, from my view was in love, you know, I was trying to thought I was trying to help her to not be gay. Um, haunted me throughout my, my adult life mm. and kind of motivated me to, you know, at, even at that early stage, at least we should be loving and we should at least be supportive of people's uh, identities. And so when it came time and then the dean was yelling at me and trying to fire me and I'm yelling back at him, I had a moment where it was just like, yeah, this is, this is right. This is, yeah. this is okay because, you know, this is my penance. You know, I fought the good fight. I thought I was going to stay longer and maybe have a career there and, and just be that guy mm. advocating. But really, yeah, this is the time's up. So, yeah. so I quit. We live in an era of unprecedented access to information, news, and media. But what happens when all that information leads you to suddenly realize you spent the majority of your childhood in a cult? Well, we can tell you. Join me, Jessica Goforth, and Kathleen Reynolds as we take you into the world of cult recovery after all the emotional, psychological, financial, and sexual abuse we experienced as part of Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute. On our podcast called Leaving the Village, we talk candidly about our journey out and interview other survivors whose experiences boggle your mind as scandals continue to rock the twisted world of IBLP. Subscribe to Leaving the Village today so you don't miss a single episode. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break from the conversation to let you know that we have a fantastic new way for you to support the podcast. If you like what you hear from our show and want to partner with us, head over to patreon.com slash fullmutuality to donate. As a partner, you'll get exclusive content, access to occasional live recording events, and more for as little as $5 a month. Thank you already for your support of what we're creating. And now, back to the conversation. I find that... Um that story, um, you know, incredibly relatable. I, I don't have, um, any specific, um, in instances in, in my mind where something like that has, has come up. And I think part of it, um, might have to do with, uh, how much I had towed the line while I was, um, you know, in the evangelical world. Um, and even even in my more compassionate days, there were people that were um, that were sharing with me their that their beliefs were shifting, but not very far. I was um, I was working for um, a very staunchly Calvinist church while holding to Wesleyan uh, ideas and and being kind of vocally anti-Calvinist. And so there were mm. some people in our Calvinist church, um, which wasn't branded as a Calvinist church. They, they liked to say, no, we're just Christian. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and, and so when you start to question Calvinism, you think you're questioning Christianity. Um, but I, th I think, um, you know, some people were, co were coming to me and, and expressing that they, they too, you know, felt this, uh, discomfort. Um, and so those are the only times that I can think of specifically, um, of, of anybody confiding in me that they didn't fit the, the standard of the environment that we were in. But, um, I think one of the, um, one of the things that sort of hit me and, and, and you mentioned Joshua Harris and why people are, are still upset with him, um, 
uh, Janice, who had been on our podcast recently, um, I, I mm-hmm. love the way that she addressed it um, in that, um, you know what, you're the the audience that that you have that you have harmed. They don't want to hear from you anymore. And right. and to 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 any thinking person, it might be best to move on to to let your apology sit out there and and just say, you know what, I'm never going to reach that person or that set of people but you know when when it comes to somebody like josh harris who had his his teachings and his book and the things and not just in that world but even as a pastor Mm -hmm. and what he did while he was a pastor in sovereign grace ministries um his everything that he had been peddling was being peddled by other problematic pastors and so so i guess you know as as janice put it perhaps his way of making penance um of of divine justice you know if if you believe in such a thing might be for him to instead of trying to address the people that he's that he's hurt and trying to sell them his new deconstruction curriculum or whatever um 300 and something yeah yeah (laughs) maybe maybe he should be talking to the pastors and trying to convince mm. them that what he had sold was toxic and yeah. and here's why and here's what you need to do with your congregation to make things right right so that's just that's just a thought but i, I kind of wonder if some of us are in are in that boat because and and gail has a few friends and uh and and i have one or two who probably um, see ourselves in Joshua Harris's shoes because, well, he deconstructed. He was somebody who was very, uh, who was who bought into all of this at a young age, and then now he's he's out of it, and and that's who we are, right? Where there's that relatability there, and we've said some pretty fucked up shit to people, right? We've done things yep. that we're that we're not proud of, right? Um, yep. but none of us have done things that we're not proud of that have affected millions and millions yeah, and millions of people directly. Yeah, we're kind of all yeah. lucky that when we were at our worst, uh, we didn't have that kind of platform he did. Mm-hmm. And I do have a lot of sympathy for him on that level. But I do agree. I think he, there is things he, there's a direction he could take that would be a lot more helpful probably to the general community. And, and, and people he could be calling out to that put him in those positions who are his yeah. buddies and friends mm-hmm. who shared oh, yeah. power, gave him the power that he had, that he should be speak like speaking up instead of speaking down, you know, like yeah. in mm. comedy, punching up versus punching down, yeah. right? Like using that, that influence you have to, to hit the, and target the right, the right people that, that it applies to. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think there was, I had questions as you were talking, they were just floating through my head. And I'm yeah, sorry, to... I went all, I went all over the No, place. we're like that all the time. Yeah. Um, we oh, we you, both yeah. have ADHD, so, so we're, <laughs> yeah, like, we're, we're always all over the place. We're like, people <laughs> listen to us. That's incredible because you must, I'm pretty sure most of our audience probably has some form of ADHD or close because they can follow us. <laughs> they can yeah. get our rabbit holes. Uh, oh, that I know where I was going to go. I think um, when you were talking about awful people, <laughs> that caught my attention. You had to deal with a lot of terrible people. I want to know what yeah. was, what was, what was, explain, explain about the terrible people, explain how that was terrible. And I think, you know, it's probably helpful for a lot of um, our white audience who, I mean, we say terrible things and do terrible things and are totally like, una- like Nate will tell me sometimes things that happen. And I'm like, 
oh, white people so think this way and like kind of just recognizing like, yes, these are deep seated ways that we handle life and treat people around us without even an awareness that that's happening. I don't know if that was a direction of the terrible people or if it was other directions of terrible people, but I want to hear about the terrible people. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, there is a there is a whiteness element to it, but I I don't I want to make clear I'm not saying white people are inherently this way. I just think any majority culture that is in power has the responsibility to 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 de- to deal with their privilege and and their perspective that tends to override all the perspectives and experiences of the people below them. So so yeah, it was mostly white men that. Um, just really have no internal mechanism to to question anything they say everything they they say is is perfect it's you don't you can't push back so if they say something racist and there were a lot of stories that i have of students in, encountering professors just promoting really racist things um which is which by itself is fine but most educational uh, systems have have policies and, and procedures in place to, to handle this and, and and correct, but you don't have that in evangelical spaces. So, um, so I'm I'm thinking of like Dan Hodge's episode of my podcast where he he tells all these horrible stories of things students said and things his colleagues said to him, which are terrible. But it's not that those things were said that is so terrible because that's life. You know, we 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 as as people of color. It just are used to it. It's the fact that there there's no there's no correction. There's no there's nothing in place that's going to address it mm-hmm. and and value the the experience and 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 honor that hurt or um, that power dynamic that exists. And so, so I'm, I know I'm being really vague right now, but um, that is the overall problem. It's not it's not that people say things or, or that do or do things. It's that those things are supported. So, so um, like you have a student that says something really racist and terrible and you guys as staff are expected to just suck it up and move on. And there's yeah, no hope well, of going to any admin and expecting them to handle right. or deal with. Yeah, well, if, 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 if the student said something like that in my class, it gets handled. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll handle it. You know, like I don't want anyone in my class feeling like, a racist view is 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 condoned or supported. Um, it, it, you know, it, I just wrote a chapter in my book where uh, a, a kid said out loud that all Mexican people are lazy, and he was going to write a paper on it. And I was like, "You you can't write a paper about that because a it's just not academically sound, and b that's that's really racist and and terrible. What a terrible thing!" And I had two two students at the back of the room who were Latina, and so I knew from experience and it, I just knew I had to have their back and I had to let make them feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so I, I destroyed that kid. Um, and we actually became good friends. <laughs> I became friends with that kid, but I did it in a way that allowed him to come back from it. But I, I made absolutely sure that everyone understood what was wrong with what he said, the context in which he said it. Mm-hmm. Because when, when a kid says something like that, it's fine. It's, you got that kid, but then you look around the room and there's all these other white kids nodding their heads like, yeah, yeah. that. And so you're not just dealing with the, the one kid. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, 
it, if that gets said in another class from another professor, the professor might even say something like, well, that's an interesting observation, you know, like, and let's, let's talk about that. You know, that's usually what happened mm. at places like APU. And so that leaves the marginalized kids feeling completely vulnerable and completely otherized. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like if you want examples, I, I don't know, there's, there's so many. <laughs> so you had, um, uh, on, on your podcast, you had at, at least one, possibly two, um, the uh, the way that the stories were told were a little vague because, because I think you might have misremembered remembered it the first time you you alluded to oh, it yeah. and it got the, the swastika. Yes, there were <laughs> apparently from from what I gathered and how I'm putting it together, there are multiple swastika stories um, at APU or or incidents. Is that is that correct? Am I... <laughs> apparently so. Uh, so at, when Obama got elected in 2008, this this is when this all went down. Okay, um, it really just emboldened the students and faculty for that matter hmm. to just be anti-black. Well, you got a black president, so I'm just going to let it all fly. And so horribly racist anti-black things were said all over campus. And I'm talking top down administration all the way down to the students, staff. Um, and it was really awful. It, it was really, it, it, it kind of broke me. It was like, it was, it was the first time I was, well, maybe the second or third time or fifth. Or tenth mm. time that I was like, I can't, I can't stay here. Yeah, I probably had that moment every year. Actually, when mm. I think about it, but um, it was one of those moments. And um, I tell this story in a, a couple other podcasts. But when Obama got elected, the the next morning, I had a class, and th- this is this is around the time of like flip phones, so texting was kind of new. But there are all these text threads going around. Um, the dorms and these are all freshmen and I, I could see my students come and sit in the class and they're all looking at their phones and, and laughing and, sh- you know, showing each other and they were like forwarding it. And I was like, well, what do you guys, cause they were depressed. You know, they, they thought that the Satan had become president of the United States. Um, they, they, one of the kids read the text out to me and it said, be sure to get your Obama Christmas ornaments so you can hang the N word from the tree. Jesus and Christ. I asked them how many of them had received this text. I didn't ask who sent it, but they almost all of them raised their hand mm-hmm. and said it's going all around the dorms. You know, this it's so again, it's it's not that racism happens because it happens at every everywhere. Yeah. It's that it's welcomed. Mm. It's it's accepted. You you may someone may go, "Oh, that's terrible. You you, you shouldn't say that." But the the person who says something like that doesn't lose any social credibility or does not lose any standing in the community mm. it's it's like oh that's terrible ha 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 um so you you can be overtly racist and still be a leader you can still be a an important person in this culture oh. and and that's the part that i i really well, was fighting against alongside many of the students that i had and many of the the other faculty but we were we were not the majority. You know, we were a small minority of people on campus pushing back at this sort of culture. I mean, I'm I'm going to assume that being a, one of the the small minority of BIPOC teachers, and here you are, you have situations that will go down in your classroom. I'm assuming where you've heard it right in front of your like the situation with the comp, like 
wanting to write an essay and you having to correct the student. Um, but then I'm assuming that probably kids that were sitting in white professors' classes where racism was being spewed by these teachers, these white teachers, you have students running probably to you because they need someone who's not white who they can confide in. So you're not just dealing with processing what might have gone down in your own class. But I'm just going to yeah. take a wild guess that you're probably having to listen to a lot of stories from from all the minority students that are sitting in other classes and experiencing these kind of comments and racism in their from staff, from other students. Did, did you find that that was like a heavy load or that that was something very common where you had other kids coming to you and telling you stories that weren't even nothing to do with your class, but yet they're, mm. you're bearing that load because you're, you're in a minority of teachers and faculty. Yeah, definitely. There, there was a, there was an office called the multi-ethnic programs office, which is where, which was sort of like the haven on campus. You could go in there and just take a breath. Hmm. And we didn't necessarily just tell all the stories. We just knew we were hearing it. And the director of the multi-ethnic programs, um, who took over kind of at the height of my time, um, was, was black and he was totally down with the students. He was, the students loved him. Mm. He ended up passing away, right? Um, I think right before, uh, 2009 school year. And that was a huge blow because there weren't many places students could go to just share their story and say, and so have and have people feel that with them, because I think that's why community is so important. Mm. Is that it's one thing to go through it, but, but and and if you don't have the community to support you, you you feel like you're all alone, and and the whole world is against you, um, or just doesn't value you uh, enough to to see your humanity. So um, so yes, there, but there were there were a lot of white professors, not a lot. There were white professors who were also known to be people that students could talk to about these things. Mm. Um, and in fact, n not all the the BIPOC professors were were safe people to talk to. You know, they you know were, they were, I wanted that was my second question. I had themselves. Yeah, I had some some yeah. questions jotted down to you, which was along the lines of how did APU, and this ties into I think what you're what you're about to say, but how did APU try and make it look like a diverse, like optically diverse where you were while at the same time trying to silence uh, American BIPOC population from from pushing back against conservative white supremacist views. How did how did the university try and trick the system, I guess? And I, if that ties into what you were saying, where it wasn't all BIPOC teachers that weren't necessarily allies. How did that how that play out in your time? Yeah, because to, to be successful as a BIPOC person at a place like APU, and it's not just APU. I, I hear this the same thing from all the uh, evangelical schools, you have, you have to be, you know, an ally of, of whiteness. <laughs> you, you can't, you can't stand up for yourself in, in moments of, of, of crisis like that. So I was very visible. I was the only faculty working directly with multi-ethnic programs. None of the other faculty wanted to. Um, and yet I never got recognized by the administration for that. The people who got recognized were the ones who, um, who, who would promote more of the school values. So you had, to, you had to play this game and then they would, re they would rely heavily on, well, there's two things. The student population, the undergrads were always completely white. Um, I th when they got below 80%, 
near the end of the time I was there, they had a big celebration. Yay, we're not, we're 79% white instead of in the 80s. Wow. Um, but if you looked, if you look at their stats that they put out, the, that in, they included grad programs and the grad programs took heavily from international students. There were a lot of, um, Korean and African people from African countries, South American countries, um, Hawaii, which is, which is, you know, an Islander population. And so the people who came to a, the students who came to APU, especially the grad students were already very, uh, um, conservative who were, they were very down with the vibe of APU. They worshiped the vibe of APU, a lot of them. And so you can say, wow, what the, the grad programs are, you know, 50% p- people, students of color. I don't remember what it was, but it was somewhere around the middle. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that African American students were well represented, or uh, mm. or Chicano students from L.A. were rep- rep- these these were not people who were pushing progressive uh, values for their communities. These were people who came to try and assimilate to a, to a whiteness. Mm. And the same thing happened in the the faculty as well. There were a lot of uh, international faculty, um, so probably I don't, I'm guessing third to half of the Asian Asian pr- professors were not American. And that's fine. And, and I'm not saying anything against international people, but you get a different kind of professor mm-hmm. um, if they don't understand the history and the context of, of racism. And, um, in, America in America specifically, mm-hmm. right? For Asian Americans, for Black Americans, for African Americans, yeah. yeah. it's a completely different context of the history of them. You, the perspective you will have will be completely yeah. different. Yeah. And so... That's sort of how they sort of not cheated, but just gamed the, the system of diversity. Because, mm-hmm. you know, all, all evangelicals are smart enough to say, oh, we, we value diversity. You know, it's, it's in their mission statements usually. <laughs> yep. um, but what that usually means is, you know, it's, it's a white space where there, other people are welcome to try and fit in. And, yeah. and that's it's about as good as they can do. Yeah. Yeah. It's and the, that's probably something common, not just to the university that you're that you were a part of, but I'm guessing yeah. it's something that they do in a lot of Christian universities is they, you know, cherry pick or pick out mm-hmm. people who will agree with their their values or not push back yeah. if they're coming yeah. from the outside, you know, kind of it's not their culture. And so they're not they're going to probably be much more submissive to whatever is being told as the yeah. narrative. Because they want to cause trouble. You know, yeah. it, they're, in, they're in a strange land. I used to go to the Christianity and Literature Conference, which is like a a thing and there was there may be you know 300 people attend these things and there were maybe like 10 or 12 BIPOC professors at these things and I would we would sort of sit together and sort of compare notes like how bad is it where you teach oh yeah (laughs) that's pretty bad how bad is oh yeah and so um it's kind of a thing it's just yeah yeah just something that that's understood (laughs) yeah yeah Wow. Um, so before we, um, before we kind of wrap up, um, I did want to give you, um, the opportunity to kind of, um, I guess share, you know, stuff that, um, that you're working on, um, you know, as far as like links and, um, and, you know, your website and social media, all of that, all of that fun stuff. Um, and just kind of, um, I guess do a little commercial for you and, and your, uh, and your work. 
I want to know about the book too. Yeah. The inspiration. Okay. The and I sort of do want to know too. Has the podcast and you can get up to all your social media and your book too. But like, has doing the podcast has that been a healing experience for you? What has it been like on your journey of just letting students tell their story and how you envision this to be? And is it sort of uh, has it surprised you? And what has that journey been like too? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're you're asking a Japanese American to to to. <laughs> To promote yeah, himself, that's hard, yeah. but I'm, I'll do my best. So I, um, I did it. Yes. Come on. You, yeah. You. Okay. I'm, I'm, okay. Deep breath. <laughs> this is okay. I'm going to get through this. Yes. The podcast has been an amazing experience. I, you know, I, I was just trying to, I have, there's so many stories and I, it was not going to fit in my book to tell all these stories. And so I, I wanted an outlet for all these students um, and friends who, who taught there and, or were administrators there to tell their stories. Um, and so I figured it would be a good way to sort of develop a platform for the, because when you write a book to these days, they want you to have, a, you know, a platform. You can't just write a book. Right. So it was satisfying with the things, you know, publishers wanted or, and, and so, and I, I wanted to do this. It's something I wanted to do. And by the time I did three interviews, I was like, this, this is incredible. Like these people are, are um, just bearing the, they haven't thought about this in a long time. They, they went through this, didn't really think about it, just moved on. And, and now I'm dragging them back through all this trauma. And, you know, all of the people I've interviewed have said that it, it helped, helped them find some kind of closure or at least beginning of closure from mm-hmm. the experience and recognize that that was traumatic, you know, cause we were very, when you're in it, you just put your head down and figure out what you have to do to survive and, and to, to have some kind of agency and identity in, in this experience. Yeah. And then when you look back, you go like, what the fuck was that? That was, that was terribly, you know, I, I noticed when I was telling my new community friends, the stories, they would just be amazed at how, what, you know, no, that, that couldn't have happened. Um, so yes, it's been You're really like, healing. I have just barely scratched the <laughs> yeah. surface of you all. You don't even know like <laughs> right, wacky things right. that went on. <laughs> so yes, the podcast has has turned into this huge um, healing factor in my own life. You know, I'm way deconstructed, and and yet I'm I I, I have to confess most of the episodes I've edited, I've been crying <laughs> while I was editing because. Um, just imagining these people going through these these experiences and I was there for a lot of it I saw a lot of these things happen firsthand and yet hearing them put it together and connect it to how it informs their worldview now and and their identity now um to me is 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 an amazing thing and so I you know I the especially the the Asian one the, the I think it's the fourth episode with Sammy I was I was adding some music and doing some final edits. And my wife walked in and I'm sitting there bawling and she's like, isn't this what you were working on last week? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but just editing takes me a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I cried every time. It was just yeah. like, Oh man. Yeah. Um, and there's, yeah. in every episode there's this, there's a moment where I'm just like, when you, when you, when you feel the weight of, mm-hmm. of it all. So yeah, it's been great. So the book is, is sort of a, com- a companion to this. My just my story of deconstruction in, while teaching at an evangelical college, and trying to sort of um, do a couple things, it, which is I, I developed my identity as a as an Asian American 
person while I was there. Like, I mean, I knew I was Asian American, I knew I was Japanese American, but I re- it really came into shape while I was there. Probably because it's just such a stark contrast. <laughs> it's just my face and and my perspective yeah. in a space like that. You you can't you, you can't not see yourself. I don't fit here. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think this way. And so, it's a tribute to my friends in my community who really made deconstructing not easy, but definitely a lot more fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the book, yeah, was coming out through Lake Drive Books. Um, Hopefully in, in January, and I'll be I'll be picking up the second. I so I, I had to stop. I had I had at least five more episodes in season one, but I signed the book contract and I had to have this deadline. So I was like, oh shit, I gotta, I have to write a book. <laughs> so down. Um, yeah, because it, it was it was all consuming. I, I would yeah. I would listen to it so many. You guys do this right? You, yeah. You, mm-hmm. you you listen to it and re-listen to it. And try to. I was trying to find an an angle of, of a story to tell and and. I, I do original music in it, and I was just I was just trying to make it. I just feel like when you're Japanese American, you can't just make a podcast. You have to you have to, had to it has like to be excellent. Yeah, I had to I had to go above and beyond with with the expectations <laughs> yeah. are. If anyone's going to listen to this, so right. um, it just so happens that it, you know it, it struck a chord, and people have been reaching out. So the second season is going to have people from other schools. Cool. So, so maybe Nate can come on and talk about. Oh, I would, I would love to we could talk about yeah. Bob Jones. <laughs> yeah. I'm so curious because I feel like it, it's funny. I went into this, like, well, you, you wait till the world hears these stories. And then people started hit, hitting me up on Twitter and Instagram. Like, well, I have this story. I'm like, oh shit. That's like <laughs> way past what, <laughs> what the stories I'm telling. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, I realize we've been talking about your podcast. We've mentioned the podcast. We, I don't think we mentioned the title of the podcast. It's a secret title. No one can know. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Chapel Probation, awesome. which is one of those. It's I had I, I had a group on Facebook when I was first starting. I was like, "What should we call this?" And all the, my friends and former students had ideas. And this one kid, BJ, who's the second guest in, mm-hmm. on the podcast, um, came up with that. And I was like, "That's kind of perfect because if you went to evangelical college, you know exactly what that is, and if you." didn't you're like what the hell is chapel probation <laughs> we um so. I'm, I'm in a little chat group i don't know if i should be putting them on blast but i'm gonna do it anyway um of last of bju alums who and and some uh former faculty who um mm. the the thing that stands out for us is discipline committee we all stood in that line for the discipline committee so we called our little chat group the discipline committee sounds um, like chapel probation to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yep yep Wait, you stood in that line? Nate? Oh, multiple oh, times. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, I got, I got to salute. I got to shout you out. Salute you, not the mono minority. <laughs> Definitely not. He even has I company that. that goes with that. I do. I not do. Not the model minority. <laughs> I have, um, yeah, I have a, a hoodie. Uh, it says not, not your model minority. Um, yeah. I, I feel like if I were alive uh, during World War II, I would be um, one of those ones standing there holding the sign saying, "I am American." Yeah. Um, or a no-no boy. Yeah. <laughs> On the topic of being uh, Japanese-American, I had to ask you this before we, we do it. We, we close off. But, like, favorite, do you have a favorite Japanese whiskey that you like? Because I know Nate is a big whiskey drinker. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I talk a big game when it comes to drinking because I, I drank a little in my 20s and 30s. And when I got to 40, you know, I get the glow. So I don't, if, if as I, and, I, and I'm 52 now. So, 
as I get the glow now, it just feels like I'm dying. So I don't drink a lot. But so so when I do drink, I want it to be good. So yeah, I love Japanese whiskey. Um, mm. We we like Hibiki and Iwai. Oh yes, um, yeah. yes. Iwai, yeah, yeah. The Japanese yeah. harmony is probably among my favorites. The but I don't I don't get it often because it is pretty expensive. The Hibiki yeah. harmony. Yep, that's Nate's. Uh, Nate's one of his favorite go like that. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any favorite uh, restaurants yeah. out by your good Japanese oh, American restaurants? On the restaurants West Coast, of course, he's got good Japanese restaurants. Because Nate is such a foodie, and he loves finding out new places to eat. So if he was to come yeah, out well, to to your to your area to LA, you live near LA still, or yeah, you know, yeah, I'm in Pasadena. So um, yeah. yeah, there's. I'm so lucky to live here because you know there's a Italian market up the street i buy stuff to cook there's an indian market down the street mm. i got i got h mart and all the japanese markets mm. um three different mexican markets you know so like i can always and i cook so i cook yeah. i cook a lot so yeah but also there's there's every kind of food Imagine in the world you know in a five minute drive from me so mm. spoiled in that way so yeah come on out well you guys Oh man! Open an invitation to to LA fantastic <laughs> on a food tour. I'm actually going. I'm taking. I'm taking Joe Lumen to a, is a famous Filipino barbecue place Ooh. here in LA called the Park's Finest. I got to shout out the Park's Finest. It's a okay. great story about uh, this this family in this community that avoided you know the violence of Echo Park by uh, learning barbecue and putting on parties. And now they have this restaurant. They were on diners, drive-ins, and dives, and um, they're just killing it with this amazing food that's so. so cool wow i'm i so so i'm i'm biracially um japanese yeah and Filipino, part, so, yeah. yeah so the the filipino food is another thing um, i have it, to take you to this place we'll that totally take amazing. you up on that before you go down uh, <laughs> to la yeah love it um okay well i think i mean i i know we could go on ad nauseum but i think i know we're just getting started exactly (laughs) the listeners will get uh will probably be tuning out soon so real quick where can people find you um do you have social media handles you have a website what's the scoop and of course it's all gonna go in the show notes but for people who don't check show notes yeah our our scott okamoto.com is the is the sort of the mothership website and on twitter and instagram our oh shit rs okamoto okay yeah, and the Chapel Program podcast is available at all the all the places. Awesome. Um, so please check it out. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much. We'll put everything in the show notes. So if you uh, if you're listening and you want to actually click on a link, just um, hit up the show notes and uh, and all of the lovely info will be there. So Scott, thank you again for joining us. This has been such a great conversation. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's an honor to be on your show. I mean, I'm a big fan. So this is awesome. very cool. Thanks. That wraps up another episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't already have one, head over to our website, fullmutuality.com, for a list of all the apps you can find us on. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners, so thank you so much for your continued support. Speaking of support, one of the best things you can do for us is to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. I'm pretty sure five-star reviews get you an extra crown in heaven. Well, seriously, if you found this episode insightful, spread the word and share it with your friends. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Full Mutuality. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Full Mutuality Podcast. Mm